in an experiment. Yeah, we didn't know yet. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but, but at some level astounding. Welcome to this week's Nature Podcast. This week, we're looking at the role of zombie cells in ageing, plus the perils of doing a PhD. On top of that, some fingerprints from Antarctica's past are causing concern for its future. This is the Nature Podcast for October the 26th, 2017. I'm Benjamin Thompson. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First up, we're joined by Adam Levy, who's been looking at signs of ice loss in Antarctica's distant past. Sea level rise will be one of the most devastating consequences of climate change. But just how much the oceans will rise remains deeply uncertain. And much of this uncertainty is down to Antarctica. In March last year, we discussed two efforts to predict Antarctica's future using computer models. One approach looked at processes of ice loss we've already seen unfold, as the atmosphere and ocean have warmed and ice sheets flow into the sea. This model then projected these processes into the future. But as the world warms, certain never-before-seen rapid ice loss processes may come into play. The other model we discussed included speculative processes like these, leading to dramatic predictions up to a metre of sea level rise by 2100 from Antarctica alone. But if these processes have never been seen before, how can we know if they're going to happen in the future? Well, it's possible that they have happened in the distant past, when the world was warmer than it is today. And now, a study has gone looking for ancient evidence of one such process. This study is searching for the fingerprints of a process called marine ice cliff instability. The lead author of the study, Matthew Wise, joined me in the studio. So marine ice cliff instability is a relatively new theory and it takes the assumption that ice will get to a certain thickness which is generally around one kilometre and at this ice cliff only the part below sea level will actually be buttressed by the forces exerted on it by the sea itself. So for this remaining portion above sea level, any forces that are acting in the ice cliff will be unopposed and as a result will simply cause a collapse once they're above a critical thickness. Is this something we know to be the case? For ice cliffs themselves, we don't see anywhere on the planet today ice cliffs that are anywhere near um, this critical thickness. This is a process then that we just haven't directly seen happen. But because the ice gets thicker as you go into the heart of Antarctica. There's this fear that as more ice is lost from the edges, this critical thickness of the ice cliff will eventually be reached. So you and your team went looking for evidence to see whether this marine ice cliff instability has indeed happened, but in the more distant past. We started looking for these features that we call iceberg plow marks, And they're simply the scratches that are left in the seafloor when an iceberg that's floating and drifting touches the seafloor and because it's still drifting, will scrape through the sediments in a very similar way to how a farmer will plough through the field. And these leave behind a mark that 
is basically acts as a, a proxy for the shape of the iceberg that produced them. So how does that link to whether or not marine ice cliff instability is a thing? In our study, we compared the shape and the size of the marks we see on the seafloor to what we'd expect from icebergs that carve from Pine Island Glacier today. So just as an example, uh, in September 2017, a large iceberg called B44 carved from Pine Island Glacier, which had an area approximately 267 kilometres squared, which is about four times the size of Manhattan Island. And if we were to consider what the underside of this iceberg could look like, we think it will be highly ragged. And if these were to ground on the seafloor, we'd expect it to produce marks that were extremely parallel, possibly several kilometres in width. Whereas the marks we see in our study are relatively small in size, V-shaped in cross-section, and could only have been produced by an iceberg that had one single sharp extension extending from its underside. How confident can we be that the signatures that you're seeing are really caused by this particular process and not something else? There's no areas in Antarctica or even anywhere in the world that we start to see plough marks of this shape and size and also this clarity at depths of 800, 850 metres, we start to actually put together that these plow marks would imply icebergs of the exact thickness that would cause this process to happen. Matthew, why is there? So these plow marks seem to suggest that marine ice cliff instability has indeed happened in the distant past. It is really interesting that there's potentially a kind of paleo evidence for, for the process existing. I mean, that's really striking. This is Jonathan Bamber, a glaciologist at the University of Bristol. He wasn't involved in this study or in previous models that included marine ice cliff instability. And although interpretations of these kinds of marks aren't Jonathan's area of expertise, he feels that the study could help us understand what lies in store for Antarctica. If these authors' interpretation of the geophysical evidence is correct, then it does suggest that this process was important in the retreat of this glacier uh, sometime in the past. And I, I think that that is an important result because it suggests that um, the process is not just hypothetical, it's real and it has occurred during a period of um, rapid retreat of, of this part of West Antarctica. This strengthens the case for um, including the process in, in modelling studies for sure. So now that we have this evidence that marine ice cliff instability may have taken place in the past, it makes more sense to take it into account to work out Antarctica's future. And if this process does return to the Antarctic in coming decades, Matthew fears it could have troubling consequences for the future of our planet. So if it were to start happening again, there's the potential that it would almost be a runaway process that would have it continuously going right into the hinterland of West Antarctica. It's quite alarming, and it, it's made worse by the fact that these that a lot of the areas where we think this process could happen are already almost critically at risk. That was Matthew Wise and Jonathan Bamber talking with reporter Adam Levy. Read Matthew's paper at nature.com forward slash nature, and make sure to give our previous podcast piece on modelling Antarctic ice loss a listen. It's from the 31st of March 2016 episode. Still to come in the research highlights, a material with picky properties and Germany's creepy-crawly concern. But now, over to you, Benjamin, to talk us through a new survey of PhD students. So a couple of weekends back, I had my first PhD dream in years. 
I was standing in the lab, looking down at my list of experiments, and it just kept getting longer and longer and longer. And then I woke up with kind of the full cold sweat going on. And it took me a second or two to realise it's actually been seven years since I graduated. But what if you're still in the middle of your PhD? What is it really like to be a student in 2017? This week, Nature is publishing the results from its fourth PhD survey, looking at what inspires, excites and frustrates students. This year, over 5,700 students took part, from astronomers all the way through to zoologists. But let's start with the important question. Are PhD students happy with their studies? About 80% of people say that they're satisfied with their PhD program. This is Chris Walston, a freelance writer who's been diving into the results for Nature. Most people are glad they did it. They don't have a lot of second thoughts, and that came out in this as well, that about uh, three quarters were happy with their decision to pursue a PhD, which is impressive considering it's such a big commitment. The Nature survey asked students what kind of things they appreciated most about their PhD, and some of the top results included things like the intellectual challenge or creativity. And the hard work involved doesn't seem to have put them off. 80% said their desire to go into research was the same or higher than when they started their studies. And that's something that we had found previously too. In fact, this was a stronger trend than a couple of years ago, that people who are in their PhD programs haven't lost their desire to do research. Indeed, the majority of respondents wanted to move into academia upon graduating, and most thought they'd find a permanent job within six years. Sadly, the lack of faculty positions means that many are likely to be disappointed. There's a bit of an overload of PhD students compared to positions in academia, but there's still a strong desire among students to go into that field as opposed to industry. And that was true two years ago, and it's true today, even though there hasn't been any improvement in that job market. One of the survey's respondents considering their job options is Kate Sumasik, a PhD student at the University of Technology in Sydney. It's definitely something that's on my mind. Um, and I guess that for a PhD student at a university especially, there's this big question of whether I go to, into academia or into industry. Um, and it's just kind of a bit of a balance of trying to get all these extra things done that might make you more employable if you were to go to industry, but also generating data and having papers out that would make you employable if you wanted to go for a postdoc. But mid-studies, thinking about a future career can get often put somewhere towards the bottom of a PhD student's to-do list. At my university, we call it the PhD student's dilemma. You're trying to balance, you know, a lot of your teaching work, writing, hobbies, meeting with your supervisor, staying on top of the literature, planning experiments, and then having a social life. It's just a balancing act. And this balancing act can be stressful. In this year's survey, participants were asked what they were most worried about since they started their PhD. The majority of those that responded said their career path, but notably over a quarter highlighted mental health problems as something they were concerned about. Of that group, about half said they'd actively sought help for anxiety or depression caused by their PhD. I'm really lucky. I have a close group of friends who I had in undergrad who have all gone on to do PhDs as well. And so when we're just talking amongst ourselves, we do notice that you know we're, we're stressed and some of us have been to counsellors and psychologists and a lot of it is related to the experience of being a PhD student. Now, everybody knows that PhDs can be stressful, but Kate decided to go further, co-founding Research Resilience, a support network for fellow students. My friends and I noticed that we started to feel better after venting to each other. And we thought, well, wouldn't it be better if more PhD students had this opportunity? So that's where Research Resilience came into it. And we realised that we could create this safe place that acts as like a forum slash seminar series slash bit of a social club and support group. And then 
students just get a chance to talk to each other and mingle over the PhD experience, and it just gives people a sense of that they're not alone in feeling these feelings. In the survey, over a third of students who sought help for anxiety or depression said their institution was helpful, although nearly a fifth felt unsupported. This shows that there is clearly room for improvement, particularly given that a paper this year in the journal Research Policy suggested that PhD students were at a higher risk of common psychiatric disorders than other highly educated people. I asked Kate what advice she might have for someone who's not sure where to turn for help. First of all, talk to your peers, talk to as many PhD students that you can, and I feel like you will find commonalities that these experiences aren't unique and that it's actually a common part of it. And then obviously I would suggest either talking to your supervisor about it to try to identify what factors of the PhD are causing the student to feel this way. And then, of course, I'd encourage seeking professional help if it is to that extent where, you know, things are difficult to cope with. The thousands who filled in this year's Nature Survey have helped shine a light on what it is to be a PhD student in 2017. Thankfully, though, Although many are concerned about their situation and what kind of future lies ahead for them, the majority seem happy that they've made the right decision. I love my PhD. It's so exciting and it's exhilarating and I really enjoy like the quest for knowledge that a PhD entails. I love finishing an experiment, getting a result, looking at it and then knowing I have to plan out another experiment to make it make sense and then going down this long rabbit hole and eventually finding an answer or hoping I do. It's still too early to say. That was Kate Sumasik. You also heard me speaking to Chris Woolston. You can read his feature on the survey at nature.com forward slash news, and you'll be able to hear more about the results in the November edition of the Nature Jobs podcast. Look out for that wherever you get your pods. Still to come, the mysterious cells wrapped up in ageing. Plus, at the end of the show, we'll be discussing the news, or lack of news, regarding the appointment of the White House Science Advisor. But now it's back to Adam Levy for this week's research highlights. We can already do so much with the flick of a switch. Power up a supercomputer, launch a rocket. Well, now an electric field can help separate two gases that are so similar that it's even hard to tell their names apart. Propane and propene. Metal organic frameworks, or MOFs, are scaffolds of metals linked by organic molecules. They can filter many different gases, but the scaffold can bend, making sieving very similar-sized molecules a bit of a strain. But electrifying a zinc-based MOF made it more rigid and more picky. The mollified membrane plucked propane from propene, gases that differ by just two hydrogen atoms. Flipping the switch off permitted propane to pass through again. This technique could make MOFs useful for drug delivery. Sift through that paper in science. Germany has a soaring pest problem. Its airborne insects are vanishing into thin air. A team has been scooping bugs from the skies in nature reserves across Germany for nearly three decades. Flying bug biomass has been falling each year, and the country has lost three quarters of its aerial insects since the study began. The biggest declines were during summer months, but the researchers don't think that changes in weather or land use can fully explain why insect numbers are dropping like flies. Swat up on that research over at PLOS One. Humans have been trying to understand the causes of ageing for millennia. 
In the 5th century BC, one theory was that the body was like a lamp and that ageing represented the body running out of life fuel. Of course, modern research focuses on the cellular and molecular processes which contribute to old age and its associated diseases. And in recent years, there's been a growing amount of interest into so-called senescent cells. Reporter Anand Jagatia takes a look at cell senescence and whether studying it could help us understand and maybe even reverse the ill effects of ageing. Senescent cells have a pretty cool nickname, zombie cells. And they are kind of undead in that they stop replicating and dividing, but they're also very hard to kill because they're resistant to cell death. They also secrete a complex variety of molecules that can have very profound effects on neighbouring cells. So why do senescent cells enter this zombie-like state? It's extremely important for preventing cancer. So undoubtedly the ability to stop dividing forever protects us from developing tumours. This is Judy Campisi, a cell molecular biologist from the Buck Institute for Research on Aging in the US. But the other important function is during wound healing in the adult, very often injury, tissue injury, is accompanied by the presence of senescent cells at the site of the injury. And if we eliminate those senescent cells, recovery, wound healing, and um, repair of the tissue is retarded. So senescent cells play a role in optimising important cell processes. But when we get older, the secretions produced by senescent cells can start to cause problems, something that Judy calls the dark side of senescence. We think the dark side of senescence has to do with the fact that as the organism ages, there are more and more senescent cells that accumulate in the tissue. Then the cells become maladaptive. Now these secretions can do things that are not necessarily beneficial. They can attract the immune system, which can be destructive. And very ironically, those secretions can also fuel the development of tumours. So could removing these cells help us to forestall some of the effects of ageing, such as cancers in later life? Jan van Dersen is a cancer biologist at the Mayo Clinic in the United States who stumbled across the answer to this question. His group was trying to create a cancer model in mice, but instead of developing tumours, the animals went on to display a rather different trait. They aged much more quickly than normal, and they had a lifespan that was five times shorter. They developed cataracts in both eyes. They had a hunchback, which was basically caused by um, accelerated muscle fiber degeneration. And uh, all these tissues that showed these accelerated aging features had vast amounts of senescent cells. And when we inactivate a key protein in the senescence pathway uh, in these mice, then we prevented the accumulation of senescent cells. And that ameliorated these aging-associated phenotypes. So that was the first clue that there was a link between the accumulation of senescent cells and the development of aging features. Further experiments from Jan's group have shown that removing senescent cells in naturally aging mice prevented age-associated declines in heart and kidney function and increased lifespans by around 25%, which is great news for any geriatric mice listening. But what about humans? A number of discoveries made over recent years indicate that 
uh, chronic diseases in humans um, are characterized by an unusual high rate of accumulation of senescent cells. For instance, in the cardiovascular disease, uh, atherosclerosis, in the plaques that build up in arteries, there's vast amounts of senescent cells, and it has now been shown that these cells uh, are an important driver of the disease process. So that's very exciting, and it has spurred a lot of laboratories and, and also entrepreneurs to try to develop uh, so-called senolytic uh, agents that safely kill senescent cells as they accumulate with aging and in the context of age-related diseases. The first clinical trials testing senolytics in humans are beginning to get underway. Unity Biotechnology, a company co-founded by Jan van Dersen, is hoping to trial these drugs over the next few years against ailments like osteoarthritis and pulmonary diseases. Jan tells me it's an incredibly exciting time for the field, but there are still lots of challenges ahead. For one thing, there's lots to learn about the basic properties of senescent cells and the drivers that cause senescence in the first place. With this in mind, I asked Judy Campisi the million-dollar question, how close are we to using these findings to treat some of the diseases of ageing? Oh, I think we're close. I mean, I, I can't give you a number. You, you know, you might as well ask me what the stock market's going to do to the next week if I give you an answer and you believe me or <laughs> But the idea that it would be possible to extend health span, that is, older people who are more vigorous and still productive, for example, I think that's going to happen um, soon, within the next decade or two, something like that. That was Judy Campisi from the Buck Institute for Research on Ageing and Jan van Dersen from the Mayo Clinic talking to Anand Jagatia. There's a feature on senescent cells in the latest issue of Nature. Go to nature.com forward slash news. And for more on ageing, you can listen to our May episode of Grand Challenges for a roundtable discussion on the topic. Time now for the news chat, and I'm joined on the line by Lauren Morello, Nature's America's Bureau Chief. Hello. Lauren, thanks for joining us. First up, this week marks a rather unenviable record for the Trump administration. Maybe you could tell us what it is. So, um, as of October 23rd, Donald Trump has now gone longer without a science advisor in place than any first-term U.S. president in the modern era by any measure, whether you're looking at the date a president announced who they want to be their science advisor, the date they submit a formal nomination to the Senate, or the date that the Senate approves that person. So that begs the question then, what's taking so long this time? You know, there are rumors that kind of swirl periodically about people that Trump is supposedly evaluating for the position. And, you know, at least two or three times there's been a rumor that it's going to happen soon. But I think at this point, it's fair to say that the delay is kind of an indication of where science fits into the Trump administration. You know, we've seen other indications of this. He nominated a climate skeptic who's not actually a scientist for the science advisor role at the U.S. Department of Agriculture. His administration is floating proposals that would essentially ban mainstream working scientists from advisory boards at the Environmental Protection Agency. The idea that they're they're floating right now is that if you have received grant money from the EPA, you can't be an EPA advisor, which contravenes decades of, of practice. So, you know, I think this is part and parcel. Um, I would say, you know, 
Trump is not completely anti-science, which is the charge that gets thrown around. Um, he seems to like biomedical science the way that a lot of Republicans historically have. But um, on the whole, he's, uh, he's definitely not pulling an Obama and really highlighting the role of science in his administration. Given that sometimes the president is known for maybe sort of shooting from the hip, it's perfectly foreseeable that he could announce somebody today. Do we know anyone who may be in the running? You know, that's always hard to say with Trump. There have been names floated for various positions that were touted as locks. He turned out to not actually get the jobs. Um, Some of the names that were swirling around this spring included a scientist named William Happer from Princeton University, who's a pretty prominent climate skeptic, and another guy named David Galerinter, who is at Yale, and he's a computer scientist. They both have fairly unorthodox views about science. I mean, maybe it's important to to let our listeners know what this job entails and what are the risks in a continued delay? The job has varied a little bit over time. Since the mid-1970s, this person has been head of the White House Office of Science and Technology Policy, which is pretty much the main body that provides advice on scientific and technical issues to the president. But in that job, the person also plays an important role coordinating science across federal science agencies, especially on issues that cut across more than one agency, like climate change or even space policy. So when you don't have someone in that office on a permanent Senate-confirmed basis, you are losing some of that ability to herd cats. Well, then, Lauren, perhaps it's time to move on to slightly happier news. This week, we've also got a report on a promising new treatment for the parasitic disease sleeping sickness, which is also known as human African trypanosomiasis. And as I understand, it rather disproportionately affects people in sub-Saharan Africa. And the current treatment for it is, it doesn't seem a lot of fun. No, it's a series of infusions that have to be given over 10 days. Um, And that's really problematic because in some of the places where this disease is endemic, it's not always safe to go out and go to the doctor to get this treatment or it requires a lot of effort to get there. So this new drug is called fexinidazole, which seems to be, you know, a lot better. So so what do we know about that? Fexinidazole is actually slightly less effective in some ways in clinical trials than the current standard of care, but it has an advantage in how easy it is to administer. It's much easier to give somebody a pill. So even though the pill is slightly less effective, if you're just looking at clinical trials, in the real world, it's probably going to be more effective because it's easier to administer and it's going to reach a lot more people. Mm, and speaking of clinical trials, then how far through are we and, uh, and what needs to be done to get this into the hands of people who need it the most? So they finished the final clinical trials and presented the results from those at a meeting in Belgium earlier this month. And I believe the European Medicines Agency is looking at that data, or soon will. That application is on the way there at the very least. And then if the EMA approves the drug, that could kind of pave the way for regulators in the Democratic Republic of Congo to also approve it. And that's one of the countries where sleeping sickness really strikes hard. What struck me then, uh, Lauren, was that with fexanidazole is that it was actually initially developed for something else, but has kind of been rediscovered. Yeah, so this this drug had actually been developed for another purpose, and a nonprofit group called the Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative came across this drug, which had been developed and shelved by a big commercial firm, Sanofi. So 
this nonprofit group decided to try out the drug in clinical trials for sleeping sickness with Sanofi's permission. And now they're at the point where it looks like it was a really good idea to do so. What sort of a difference then do you think this will make to the people who live in DRC, for example? You know, it's hard to say until the drug is approved and on the ground, but I think the people who develop this drug and people who study this condition or provide aid in areas where the condition is common are just really excited by the idea of having a medicine to treat a really devastating disease in an easier way, just opening up treatment, making it more accessible, reducing the number of people whose lives are changed for the worse by sleeping sickness. Nice to have some good news. Thanks, Lauren. For more on these stories, head over to nature.com forward slash news. That's all for this week, but make sure to check our video channel for a recent documentary looking at two projects that are helping people with a terminal neurodegenerative disease to record video messages for their families. That's at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. <laughs>